Hi, I'm Jason Wachab, founder and CEO of MindBuddyGreen, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at MindBuddyGreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. This episode is sponsored by our friends at SunBasket. If you're not familiar with SunBasket, they're a meal kit delivery service that tailors their ingredients to your specific dietary needs and preferences. So no matter if you're paleo, vegetarian, vegan, or gluten-free, you can choose from over a dozen recipes and get a box of delicious meals delivered right to your door each week. And you can now get $45 off your first two weeks of SunBasket when you head over to sunbasket.com mbg. $35 off your first week and another $10 off your second week. That's sunbasket.com mbg. Personally, my wife Colleen and I have been obsessing over their Lean and Clean box, which features meals that are high in protein, gluten-free, and free of added sugars. Being busy entrepreneurs, I'll admit that we don't get to spend as much time in the kitchen as we like. But some basket meals are super easy to prepare in less than 30 minutes since they come with pre-made sauces and spice blends that are beyond delicious. My New Year's intention this year was to actually eat more fresh vegetables. Granted, I already eat a lot, but there's always room for improvement. And SunBasket has helped me do just that. Now we sit down to at least two home-cooked veggie-heavy meals a week with our baby daughter, Ellie, who has even started to eat some of the greens we give her. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, I guess. We also love the flexibility of SunBasket and have been ordering their family basket when we know we'll be entertaining friends and family. And since we travel a lot, we appreciate the fact that you can skip meals at any time. The best part, though, is that we can feel really, really good about what we're ordering. Eating sustainably is something that's really important to our family, as I'm sure it is for yours too. Some Baskets head chef, Justine Kelly, is obsessive about her sourcing, and the company is super picky about the farmers, ranchers, and fishermen they work with. That means responsibly raised meats, sustainably sourced fish, organic pasture-raised eggs, and organic non-GMO tofu, all of which comes in recyclable packaging. So again, right now you can get $45 off your first two weeks of SunBasket just by going to sunbasket.com mbg. Happy cooking! This episode of the Mind Body Green podcast is sponsored by Yoga Club. If you live an active lifestyle, you know how important it is to have clothing that can take you straight from work or brunch to your favorite yoga studio. At Mind Body Green, we certainly live that lifestyle, which is why we're so excited to be working with Yoga Club. Not only is Yoga Club on a mission to empower women, but they provide the same name brand activewear you'd find in a yoga studio or high-end department store at 60% of the price. Here's how it works. By working directly with manufacturers, Yoga Club is able to offer lower prices by cutting out the middleman. Additionally, Yoga Club acts as a personal stylist of sorts. When you subscribe, stylists put together outfits based on both your personal look and your workout preferences. You can opt to receive boxes from Yoga Club seasonally. Wondering what you can expect in each box? Think brands like Free People, Varley, Onesie, Tiki, Splendid, Glider, and Manduka. Not only will you get some of the best brands out there, but you'll get tons of variety. Yoga Club is also committed to giving back to the community. Thanks to a partnership with LA's Best, a nonprofit that provides after-school education and enrichment for elementary school students in the LA area, for every box delivered, Yoga Club provides a yoga or meditation class for a student in a low-income school. Head over to yogaclub.com and use code MBG20 for 20% off your first Yoga Club box. That's MBG20 for 20% off. Now let's get to the episode. Hey, everybody. I just want to take a quick moment to thank you all for listening to the podcast and to say that we want to listen to you. So if you have any questions, any dream guests, we are all ears. I would love to hear from you. So ask me anything and stay tuned for the answers or your dream guests on this very podcast. Send your questions to podcast at mindbodygreen.com. That's podcast at mindbodygreen.com. And I look forward to hearing from all of you. Thanks so much. And let's go back to the podcast. Dr. Stephen Gundry is a cardiac surgeon, medical innovator, best-selling author of The Plant Paradox, and the founder of the Center for Restorative Medicine. He spent the last 15 years studying the human microbiome and has applied many of his learnings in his book, Plant Paradox. He also has a very strong opinion on beans. It is an honor to have Dr. Stephen Gundry here today. 
Dr. Gundry, welcome. Thanks for having me. So uh, I was a big fan of your book, Plant Paradox, uh, which has done extraordinarily well. And I, I know that there, there's a part of the book about lectins, a big part of the book, lectins and, and beans specifically. Very controversial, which a lot of people disagree with, beans specifically. So I, I have to start there. I don't eat beans because they give me gas. But uh, Well, there you go. <laughs> well, you know, beans and, and lectins, and I guess we can dive right into beans because it is a bone of contention with a lot of um, very vocal vegans. And I, I don't think there needs to be this contention. Uh, I, if anyone actually reads The Plant Paradox, they know that I'm a confirmed plant predator. And that The book is actually probably one of the most pro-plant-eating books that I know of. Right. But what I've tried to do with the book is educate the average eater that there are certain plants that don't particularly want you to eat them or their babies. And there's other plants that we've and our we and our microbiome have long since become accustomed to and know how to degrade. And as long as you kind of play by the plant's rules, uh, you'll do very well. So uh, beans uh, in general have some of the highest amounts of lectins, which are what are called sticky proteins that are designed by the plant to uh, protect their babies from being eaten. And it does that in multiple ways. For instance, there's some beautiful research at the Medical College of Georgia that was my medical school that shows that the lectins in cooked beans have the ability to irritate the uh, intestinal wall and the wall of the large intestine, and that it actually stimulates bowel movements, not because of the fiber content, but because of the irritation of the gut wall, and the gut tries to expel these things. And we know the same things happen with the lectins in whole grains. It's actually the outer hall that irritates the bowel wall and makes bowel movements happen more often. Now, I happen to think that is a sign, and again, my institution proved this, that that's a bad thing for you from that standpoint. And there's far better ways to initiate a bowel movement by feeding gut bugs soluble fiber instead of insoluble fiber, but we can get into that. Got it. So we'll, we'll agree to disagree on beans, yeah. perhaps. <laughs> but, but get back to the common ground. So a lot of your book essentially is eat a plant-based diet. Yeah. You know, people need to pick up the book, they need to read the book, but like, talk about your, your food philosophy, if you could summarize. Yeah, I think, well, we were, we were, we come from tree-dwelling tree apes. We're basically an evolved tree shrew. And we've been eating the leaves of trees uh, for millions of years. And we've evolved to interact with the lectins in two-leaf uh, plants. What we haven't evolved to is interact with the lectins in single-leaf pl plants, the grasses. Cows, uh, herbivores are designed to interact with those lectins, but we don't have three stomachs or four stomachs. So it turns out the lectins in single-leaf plants are actually very different than the lectins in two-leaf plants. So we did very well as a species until about 10,000 years ago when, uh, because of climate change, uh, we were actually forced to start cultivating crops, and those primary crops were grains and beans. And uh, interestingly enough, those had a very negative impact on us as a species. We actually shrunk from almost six feet tall to about five foot, a little under five feet in 2,000 years. Our brain size uh, decreased uh, by about 15%. We've actually never caught up with uh, our brain of 10, 15,000 years ago. And I think, and other people think, that it's because of the negative impact of the lectins in grains and beans. Now, the bad part was overshadowed by the fact that grains and beans were storageable forms of food. 
and we could grow them during a season and then have food to eat during the bad season, whether it was a dry season or a rainy season or a cold season. So clearly civilization, as we know it, um, probably couldn't have happened without these storageable forms of uh, food. The other thing that I, I point out is that there's probably a different benefit that we don't recognize until recently is that grains and beans are the one way that we've found to make an animal fat for slaughter. And there's no way to make a cow fat on grass. There's no way to make a pig fat on acorns or grass. Uh, same with a chicken. You can't make a chicken fat on bugs. Uh, but grains, corn, corn. wheat, uh, soybeans, uh, is the way to make an animal fat. And as I show in the book, there's some pretty good evidence that it's the lectins in grains and beans that actually improve fat storage from the number of calories that you eat. And I propose in the book that maybe the real reason these became our food of choice is because we didn't have much to eat and that any food that would promote fat storage uh, would have been a wonderful uh, lifesaver. Right. So, so mostly vegetables. Yeah, mostly no, vegetables. No, no corn. No corn. Corn is an American strain. Sure. I think everyone's on board with corn is not so good these days. Yeah, you know, the scary thing about corn, uh, as you know, uh, if you look, corn has a specific carbon molecule that can be identified. It's a C4 carbon. And so you can do a, a hair analysis or a piece of skin analysis from an American, and about 70% of all the carbon atoms in Americans is actually corn-based. Hmm. And Europeans are uh, 5% corn-based because, you know, the French banned corn in 1900 is unfit for human consumption. It's mostly GMO here, too. It's mostly GMO. What's even kind of worse than the fact that it's GMO is that now almost all of our conventional crops are sprayed with uh, glyphosate. Um, Roundup mm. as a harvesting aid to desiccate it. And I think one of the things that the regular consumer has been misled is that Roundup is not just used on GMO crops, but it's used on almost all conventional right. crops. And we talk a lot about that in the book, about Roundup is one of the seven deadly disruptors that's really exposed us to our microbiome being completely sure. screwed up. So we're eating lots of vegetables. We're going to shelve beans for now. No <laughs> corn, no grains. What else? What you, about you, meat, dairy? You, Let's you, talk about those two. Let's go for the all the big food groups. And, and for my vegan friends and patients, just pressure cook your beans and you'll be fine. <laughs> so I Meat, dairy, and seafood. Yeah, so there is a weird sugar molecule in beef, lamb, and pork called new 5gc and i talk about in the book who knew the sugar molecule is one atom different than the sugar molecule that lines the lining of our blood vessels called new 5ac we share that sugar molecule with uh, chickens and with fish but interestingly, in my research in xenotransplantation of using pigs as a donor for human heart transplant, uh, one of the things we found was there was this sugar molecule in the lining of, of pig blood vessels that we reacted to. And it turns out there's some now very good research that when we eat beef, lamb, or pork, we make an autoantibody to our own blood vessels because this, these two sugar molecules are so nearly identical that our immune system can't tell the difference. So we actually end up attacking our own blood vessels. And that's why every study shows that red meat consumption, and pork is not the other white meat, it's a red meat. <laughs> <laughs> shows that it increases heart disease. The other really kind of bizarre thing is cancer cells, tumors, use NU5GC as a cloaking device. And we have no uh, system to make NU5GC. 
So we know that any new 5GC that appears in a human came from a cow, a pig, or a lamb. And tumors actually have a high concentration of new 5GC. Mm. And there's some pretty interesting evidence that it's used by tumors as a cloaking device to hide from the immune system. And that explains why there is a strong correlation with red meat consumption and cancer. And I wish it wasn't true because I grew up in Omaha and Milwaukee and you know bratwurst and beef sure. is king. But the, the evidence, and I, I present it, I, I hope, in an in a easy-to-understand way, is, is pretty strong that these should be very limited in our diet. So is red meat like a once-a-month thing, a once-a-week thing, or a once-a-year once a thing? Yeah, I think, I think once-a-month thing is a, is a reasonable idea. Um, I was actually in Hong Kong last week and had some uh, Kobe beef. Um, sure. Sm- a small, one in Hong Kong? Yeah, wh- yeah why not? Uh, and, but it was mostly fat. So. Sure. <laughs> what about the white meat chicken? Here's the problem with chicken. Um, Chicken was, is, a, is a relatively newcomer in our diet. Uh, at the turn of the last century, almost no one ate chicken. Uh, chickens were incredibly important as farm animals because they went out in the fields and dug through the cow pies and uh, distributed the manure. And then they'd come back and lay eggs. And you would be dumb to kill a chicken that was laying the golden eggs, if you will. Hmm. So the only time you ate a chicken was when the old hen couldn't delay anymore, and she became a stewing hen. And I'd like to remind listeners that Herbert Hoover's campaign slogan was a chicken in every pot, not in every fry pan, because <laughs> that's where you put a chicken. And I talk about it in the book. There's an amazing Ph.D. thesis from Akron State University calling from... A, farm to fat kids looking at the changes in diet from 1900 and 2000 and looking at the obesity rates in the United States. And one of the fascinating findings was there were two things that, and two things only, that can be implicated in obesity in the United States in that time period. And it's the increase in chicken consumption and the increase in pizza consumption. So is that like fry? Is that more like KFC or what do you chicken think? in general? Chicken uh, in general. Chicken is no so longer. You can't distinguish between like the fried garbage, yeah, no. versus the and, grilled. And in, and in fact, again, I hate to keep beating animal protein to death, but there's two very large uh, international studies now that implicate animal protein consumption of, of all types as equal to sugar consumption as the cause of obesity and diabetes. And that's actually because of a mistake that Adkins didn't know, that any medical student knows, but we kind of tuck it aside, in that we actually have no storage system for protein except for building muscle or for just wear and repair. So if we eat protein in excess and that excess is actually su- surprisingly small we only yeah, I was gonna need, say like what a percentage we basis need about body 20 weight. grams of protein a day that's all we need and that's like a protein bar that's exactly right yeah protein bar me- meets your and we'll protein talk about that too because you have favorite protein bars yeah. and so anyhow any excess protein is not wasted we're not that dumb so we convert protein into sugar it's called gluconeogenesis And this was the mistake Adkins made. Uh, He, at least as far as I can tell, talking to his ghostwriters and his head nurse, he had to morph from being a high-fat doctor because he got into horrible trouble with the American Medical Association to a high-protein doctor, which was, you know, safe. And he actually died a fat man. It's true. He was obese. Um, And I think it's because he didn't know this. Now... My first book, uh, Dr. Gundry's Diet Evolution, was bought by Random House, and my editor did all the Adkins books and all the South Beach Diet books. And they they bought my book because this is the mistake that I had figured out that Adkins made. And I think now that this new research from uh, these international studies, I think that points the finger back that we've made a horrible mistake thinking that protein was safe and was good for us. Sure. So you mentioned chicken. Yeah. So, eggs. 
Yeah, so, you know, what I like to do is have people take a pastured egg or an omega-3 egg and take throw three whites away and combine four yolks and one white and make an omelet out of it. And so you're okay with eggs then? Yeah, I think eggs, uh, as long as you're throwing the protein away, are not a, not a bad thing, as long as they came from a chicken that you knew what it was eating. Sure. And so while we're on, we'll, we'll segue to, to full-on dairy. So things like cheese, butter, a lot of people drink, you know, bulletproof-style coffee with uh, grass-fed butter, MCT oil. Let's talk about dairy, butter, and then, and then we'll segue to coffee, too. Okay, so as I drink mine, that's right, and I've got a I've got a black cup of coffee over in the corner, but I'm drinking it black. Um, the problem with dairy is not so much dairy fat, but what the breed of cow is, and it's the type of a protein in cow's milk called casein. Sure, and there's the original cow uh, made a protein called casein A two. It's also the protein in goat milk, sheep milk, water buffalo milk. Um, But about 2,000 years ago, northern European cows suffered a genetic mutation, spontaneous, and they started to make a protein called casein A1. Northern European cows are hardier. They get more milk. Most people would recognize a Holstein cow, a black and white cow. Uh, as a that's an A1 cow and so these cows really took over the world I learned recently from an Indian patient that uh, the British brought the Holstein cow into India and bred it with the uh, Indian cow which was actually an A2 cow and so unfortunately most of the cows in uh, India now are are A1 cows Mm -hmm. so uh, interesting aside Uh, but A1 actually is a lectin like protein that makes susceptible people, most of us, attack the beta cell of our pancreas. And there's a new study uh, that was brought out of China recently comparing the incidence of juvenile diabetes or type 1 diabetes with um, A1 and A2 milk consumption. And the A2 milk did not uh, associate with type 1 diabetes, but A1 milk consumption did. Hmm. So I think that I think it's a real thing, and interestingly enough, we're now seeing a real increase in juvenile or type one diabetes among adults, and uh, we're we're looking at an antibody called the anti-GAD GAD antibody uh, in a lot of our patients, and trying to figure out if this is from their milk consumption. So you can use goat milk, you can use sheep milk. Uh, I prefer not to use milk because of a growth hormone in it called insulin-like growth factor. Cheese, on the other hand, doesn't have insulin-like growth factor. However, about 25 to 30% of people in the United States carry the ApoE4 gene that is unfortunately nicknamed the Alzheimer's gene. Mm -hmm. And um, both Dr. Dale Bredesen and I believe that saturated fats, as a general rule, are not very good for ApoE4s, and we could have a two-hour discussion on why that is. But in general, I advise my patients who are ApoE4s, and I, I take care of a great number of them because... Among others, Dale Bresden thinks I'm probably the expert on the dietary treatment of the, of the ApoE4 gene. And so I try to get them to limit their cheese products, and I actually try to get them to limit coconut oil. I haven't made my mind up about MCT oil yet because it's a different uh, saturated mm-hmm. fat. Um, but I can tell you that uh, when people use MCT oil, uh, they're small dense LDL particles definitely go up. Um, whether that's a bad thing or not, we'll let other people decide. But I, if I'm carrying an ApoE4, I probably would not want a large amount of small dense okay. LDLs. So what about butter? 
So butter. So you're not if you're not if you're torn on MCT oil. I'm going to guess. So butter again, ApoE4, stay away. But interestingly enough, this is where Dave Asprey and I, uh, who we agree on a lot, uh, part company. It depends on the breed of cow because even butter has casein A1. Sure. Uh, anybody who knows how to clarify butter know there's actually quite a bit of milk solids right. in butter. So it depends on who the cow is and. So, for instance, if the cow is a southern European cow, or if it's goat butter or sheep butter, you're perfectly safe. But if it's a northern European cow, like an Irish cow... Yeah, where's the Kerrygold cow? Kerrygold, bless Kerrygold's heart, on the picture of their package, they have a Holstein cow. And I believe that probably in their hearts they want to warn us that it's the wrong breed of cow, but I doubt that. So it's a Holstein. So So no good. No Kerrygold. So what is that? Go buy some French butter from Trader Joe's or Whole Foods. (laughs) I love it. Or you can buy Irish... Uh, uh, Italian butter at Costco, um, perfectly safe. So butter. So you're not. I want to get back to. So so the butter that's not fancy, safer. In yeah. your opinion. Um, you know. If you're going to have it. If you're going to have it. Yeah. But you don't but recommend you should, it. My my personal feeling, I'd much rather use olive oil. As as you probably heard me say, the only purpose of food is to get olive oil into your mouth. Are you okay with coconut oil? Or does that fall on the sat fat? Yeah, and coconut oil, I try to get my ApoE4s to stay away from coconut oil. Okay. I think everybody else, it's pretty safe. So what are the okay fats then? So, you know, we're talking brain health. Everyone says, you know, you're yeah. going to have healthy fats. So what are the healthy fats? Avocados? So avocados are great. They're a monounsaturated uh, fat like olive oil. Uh, macadamia nut oil is a great oil. Yeah. Sesame oil is a really cool oil. It's an omega-6 fat, but it actually blunts. Mm the inflammatory effect of omega-6s. It's a, it's a fascinating... I like to study why cultures have chosen a particular food, and the Middle Eastern and Persian culture, as you know, uses huge amounts of sesame. And when you look at their diet otherwise, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a lectin bomb diet. <laughs> and I've, I've really felt that there was a reason why sesame oil and sesame uh, became a part of that diet to negate the inflammatory effect of the other foods mm. that they ate. Avocado oil, okay? Yeah, avocado oil is great. So but you're looking for oils. The oils really aren't that important. They're actually a delivery device for what are called polyphenols. Yep. And as you know, I'm a, I'm a polyphenol nut. Um, polyphenol are plant compounds that are designed to actually protect the plant from insects, from sunburn, uh, from oxidation in their uh, fruits. And these, we now know, change our bacterial behavior bacteria take these compounds and make them into Hmm. very interesting free radical scavengers. Um, We know that a certain polyphenol like resveratrol or quercetin, quercetin, are incredibly important for brain health, and we can get into that. So close the loop on coffee. So coffee black. Coffee black. So when's too much coffee? Uh, there probably isn't any. Uh, there's actually some really good studies that five cups of coffee a day are nearly preventative of Alzheimer's disease. Oh, wow. So I'm six foot seven, two hundred twenty pounds. So you, does that you, mean you, I get like you go, eight? You, yeah, you go for eight. All or right. Nine. All right. Let's just shut down the podcast right now. I got all I want from this podcast. What but <laughs> but here's the deal. If you, oh no. Yeah. If you put milk in it, I don't do it, milk. It, oh, good. It absorbs the polyphenols. Almond and, milk, okay. Uh, yeah, uh, you're okay with that. But okay. interesting, just interesting tidbit. So you're looking for the polyphenols in coffee, which are huge. Green tea or black tea has huge amounts of polyphenols. And it's interesting, there's two you know, cultures that use tea, uh, the English and the Chinese and Japanese. The Chinese and Japanese don't put any milk in their tea, whereas the Brit- British do. And the British basically get no health benefit from their tea because the polyphenols have been bound up by the milk, whereas the Japanese and Chinese uh, are smart enough not to put milk in it. So what, I'm going to close the loop. I'm, I'm covering the bases in the supermarket. We're going aisle through aisle. So we'll move nuts, and I think we got seafood left. Yeah, so nuts, um, you know, coming... And fruit, nut, nut fruit, uh, and seafood. Great. 
So nuts. And then we got to cover alcohol too while we're at it. We'll sure, close why with not? booze. Or, yeah, we're going to close with five o'clock somewhere, yeah, right? That's right. <laughs> it's wine o'clock. Um, it's interesting. I was in Hong Kong last week, and at the hotel I was staying, they have a wine o'clock bar. <laughs> I thought that was very appropriate. So uh, nuts. There. Tons of research, particularly out of Loma Linda, my uh, old school, that shows that eating about a half a cup of nuts a day is incredibly beneficial in not only heart health, but brain health and preventing cancer. Now, there are two nuts that aren't nuts. Peanuts and cashews are not nuts. They're beans. They're legumes. So they, quite frankly, don't count. But walnuts, macadamia nuts, pistachios, almonds. almonds, take the peel off of almonds. There's a lectin in the peel of almonds that a number of my patients with rheumatoid arthritis definitely react to. Interesting. Marcona almonds are perfectly safe. Most almond flour is blanched, which means the peel's been removed, right. so you're, you're usually safe. So uh, eat your nuts. Um, they also improve your gut microbiome. Your gut microbiome loves the fibers in nuts. Uh, so that's nuts. Fruit. Uh, fruit. So here's the deal. Long ago, <laughs> fruit ripened once a year, and that was only in the summer. And even in the jungle, fruit ripens once a year, and believe it or not, great apes only gain weight during fruit season. They're eating a lot of fruit, though. They're eating a lot of fruit, (laughs) but it's only for a limited time. And they they only fatten up during fruit season. An orangutan gains about 8 pounds. Um, A female orangutan only goes into heat at the end of fruit season when she's put on those 8 pounds. Uh, So we used fruit to get ready for the winter, and the winter was a time of less food. So tons of my patients, it's their year-round fruit that's making them uh, overweight. The other thing that I really think people should know is that fructose, and we hear so much about high fructose corn syrup, fructose is absolutely positively a toxin that's detoxified in our liver into both triglycerides, a fat, and into uric acid, which causes gout and hypertension. About 30% of the fructose from fruit is absorbed directly into the bloodstream where it goes to the kidneys and is a direct nephrotoxin. And when I treat my patients with renal failure, the fir- one of the first things I do is remove fruit from their diet. And it's amazing to watch people's <clears throat> kidney function improve. For most people, though, like blackberries, blueberries, raspberries, the berries are... Yeah, probably a good thing, but not eating a whole bag. Yeah, not eating a whole bag. You don't go to Costco and buy the two-pound blueberries you know, right. in February. But like a cup of uh, blackberries a day, good thing? Uh, not that many. You really only need three or four. And blackberries yeah. are probably the best. If, the best. Right? Yeah, probably the best. And the worst fruit is probably banana? Pro- yeah, the banana is right up there on a sugar bomb. So uh, if you're going to have a banana, uh, eat it green. If you eat it green, it's great for you. Okay. And I do mean green, not just, you know, and okay. green bananas taste horrible. So, so it sounds like uh, the one thing everyone always agrees on is sugar is just terrible. Yeah. Um, Processed sugar, the worst. Like yeah. stay away, like sugars. Yeah, I mean, we... Dark chocolate, okay, here and there. Yeah, I, you know, I have a piece of 85% dark chocolate every night. Uh, there are some amazing polyphenols in chocolate. How dark do you have to go? What's like the threshold? Well, I, I really try to get people above 72%, but okay. then work your way up. Um, I, I actually, you know, 85% now tastes sweet to me, but... Uh, oh, wow. Uh, it really does. And there are some 90% chocolates out wow. there that actually have a bit of sweetness to them. And we'll... We've got seafood and alcohol left. Okay, seafood. So wild fish, please do not eat farmed fish. Of course. If you see the word organic, um, run. (laughs) Because, you know, you you can't follow a salmon around the ocean to see if it's eating organically. So by definition, organic salmon means they're in a pen and they're fed organic corn and soybeans or other grains. And just don't, I recently had a a woman with, uh, who we got all of her rheumatoid arthritis markers down to zero. Wow. And I saw her back, uh, actually about a month ago now, 
and her rheumatoid markers were, were back up. And I said, uh, you know, what's going on? You're, you're cheating. And she said, no, 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 you know, I'm not. And so we kind of start going down the list. And I said, no, you're eating wild salmon, right? She said, oh, yeah, I'm fanatic about that. All I eat is organic salmon. I've been on a real kick, organic salmon. And I said, <laughs> wait a minute. You know, right. and I said, that's it. And so we're going to retest her in a few weeks, but I'll guarantee it was the wow. organic salmon. So wild salmon, what about the rest of the... Yeah, so I'm, I'm a big fan of wild shellfish. Um, if you talk to environmentalists, Mussels uh, may be actually the greatest food animal protein that you can consume. It actually cleans our oceans. They're some of the greatest filter feeders of all time. Mm. And don't believe the stuff that shrimp are bottom feeders. Shrimp swim, swim in schools. Crabs are not bottom feeders. So you're okay with shrimp? Yeah, I actually Wild, shrimp. Wild shrimp. Wild shrimp Lobster? are great for you. Lobster, great. Go for it. So is there a bad seafood? Uh, yeah, farm-raised. Farm, so anything farm. Otherwise, yeah. seafood is okay. Yeah, you. you know, and don't eat oysters that you know right. the fishermen have been crapping on in the summer. And you can never tell. You never know. Oysters are a bit of a crap shoot, as yeah. they say. But, you know, particularly from cold water, oysters are, sure. are really safe. So East Coast. Yeah, high East Coast or even Vancouver, uh, Washington State, uh, that's cold water oysters. And alcohol. So uh, if we're having oysters. We're having fit. Come, you know. It, let's. So I, I, I think there is a health benefit to moderate alcohol consumption because of the polyphenol content. So as you know, I, I think uh, six ounces or so of red wine is a really good idea consumed with a meal. Uh, if people want to have a spirit, if the spirit has been aged in contact with wood, so for instance, whiskeys or bourbons or cognacs, they actually extract the polyphenols from the wood. Uh, gin extracts the polyphenols from juniper berries, which are also very so you're good. you're pro-whiskey and gin. Yeah, but vodka, no. Uh, vodka, and, no. And if you're going to have tequila, have a dark tequila that's been aged in wood. Dark tequila, mezcal? Yeah. Beer? No Beer, good. No. What about even the gluten-free stuff? Okay. It's still, to me, it's just a, you know, it's a bottle of sugar. Um, yeah, but the, even the gluten-free, the problem with gluten-free that I see in my patients, and certainly it's been studied well, is that most gluten-free foods are full of actually more potent lectins. And as I talk right. about in the book, you can you're, take... You're better off eating sourdough bread than the gluten-free bread you said in the book, right? <laughs> yeah. that's <clears throat> Everybody wants to latch on to that and say, oh, Dr. Gundry says I can have sourdough no, bread. No. I, I think it's interesting, though, because, you know, for I think diets or whatever we want to call them can go wrong as they become a movement that every consumer packaged good manufacturer says, all right, let's go. Oh, let's, yeah. let's do the CPG version. And then next thing you know, we're just packaging shit and we're taking oh, yeah. out whatever it is we're taking out. We're putting other crap in there to make up for it. And then we're in the same problem where someone says, oh, I'm, you know, I'm paleo, I'm whatever, I'm vegan, but I'm just eating shit all day. Correct. Yeah, I mean, the gluten-free you know world is now a twenty-three billion dollar business and sure. shows no sign of so stopping. So take take and every it's pure sugar. Yeah, we'll <laughs> take every dessert and treat you can't have on that diet, and we'll just create a fake one. Yeah, yeah, and it's just you know, there's there was a beautiful study that I cite in the book of celiacs, biopsy-proven celiacs who are put on a two-year gluten-free diet re-biopsied and 70% of them were still celiac by biopsy and that's because the crap that they're eating is actually loaded with other right. lectins that mimic gluten. Uh, there is no such thing as a gluten-free oat folks. Oats right. have a lectin that mimics gluten and I, I see it all the time. So one thing we didn't talk about with booze that reminds me of a conversation we had at Revitalize this past year, uh, sparkling Sparkling wine. Ah, yes. Champagne. So um, I included... There was some science there I think your there wife is. was working on. Yes, my wife worked on this science. <laughs> There's actually a French study that showed that women who consumed uh, champagne uh, as their beverage of choice had lower incidence of dementia than their corresponding women who didn't. And so some researchers in France, obviously, uh, looked into the polyphenol content of uh, the Pinot Noir grape and the Pinot Meunier, uh, which 
are big constituents of uh, champagne, and the polyphenols in these particular grapes actually improve brain health. So hmm. uh, my wife, who happens to be a champagne fan, uh, said, you got to put that in the book. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> so if I, I'll, I'll try to summarize. So to me, it seems like we're eating mostly vegetable, you know, 80%, 90% vegetables, yep. some seafood, staying away from meat. We're having coffee. We're staying away from sat fat. We're only having healthy fats, lots of avocados, some nuts, and uh, some wine. And we're calling it a day. Sounds pretty to, good. If I were to summarize and, and yeah, and I think the other the other caveat to that. So, for instance, um, usually during the week, my wife and I eat vegan, and then on the weekends we uh, add seafood to our diet, and we try to get about a liter of olive oil per week into us. We usually fail. We get about a liter and a half between the two wow, of us. Wow, that's a lot. What are you putting it on? Anything. The only purpose so. of food is to get olive oil into your mouth. And <laughs> as I told Dr. Oz, the only purpose of sourdough bread, if you're going to eat it, is a, is as a sponge to soak up olive oil. And is that is that mouth. the best? If you're gonna if if you're gonna go nuts and have gluten, is that the best option? In yeah, your opinion? yeah. True. I mean, this is why so many of my patients who have irritable bowel or an autoimmune disease that we get them for lack of a better word, cured, and all their autoimmune disease markers go away. And some of them are from Europe, and they go over to Europe, and sure. they're really afraid to eat their traditional foods, but they go over there, and they go, gee, you know, it's interesting. I'm eating the bread over here. I'm totally and, fine. And I'm totally fine. Yeah. And then I came back here, and I'm thinking, oh, great, I'm cured, and now I can have, you know, American sourdough bread from the supermarket, and they flare. And it's because so rarely in the United States do we all actually have you know, artisanal raising techniques and true sourdough cultures and true fermentation. And fermentation, the bacteria eat a lot of the gluten. I mean, we know there are gluten-eating bacteria. And so traditional cultures where they still do this... Um, I talk about in the book, and they have no preservatives in their bread. Sure. Um, I was checking out of a hotel uh, early in Paris one morning, and the night before I said, you know, could you send up some coffee and, you know, a croissant up to the room? And, and he said, well, what time are you going? And, you know, I said, well, you know, I'm leaving at 4 o'clock in the morning. It'll be fine. You send a croissant. He said, oh, my gosh, I, I couldn't send you a croissant because they'd be old. You know, I, 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 I couldn't do it. And, and he was actually, he was dead serious. He said, oh, my gosh, didn't you know. So you travel a lot. I travel a lot. A staple for me has to be protein bars. Sometimes, what yeah. any any favorites there? Yeah, I really I, I like the Quest bar a lot. Yeah. Certain of the Quest bars are really pretty safe. You got to which re ones? Yeah, the uh, double chocolate chunk, okay. the banana nut, the um, strawberry cheesecake, the lemon uh, cream pie. There's a new one, the chocolate mocha, that's safe. And am I forgetting any? Any other brands? Cinnamon bun. Yeah, the Yup bars, Y-U-P, huh. uh, or they're sometimes called B-Up. Uh, most of the time you only see them on Amazon. Oh, interesting. Uh, interesting stuff. Uh, the chocolate chip cookie dough is, is really good. Yep. I'm also a big fan of the Adapt bars. And I use the Adapt bars for my uh, keto uh, program. Uh, they're they're made. Uh, they were invented by a, a bariatric surgeon in South Africa, and they're they're little keto bombs, a little, a little small. They're mostly MCT hmm. oil and coconut oil. They're either coconut or chocolate flavored, and when you buy them, they come like 15 in a package. And I have no relationship, wow. but you buy them and they're really small. And you go, damn, I've got chip. But they're, they're really great little energy bars. So let's segue to ketosis and intermittent fasting. Okay. So I've got, a, I've got a whole chapter in the book uh, called My Intensive Care Plan. <laughs> um, you know, the problem in America is about 80% of Americans are um, insulin resistant. They have very high insulin levels. And insulin is really one of the scourges of why we have this tremendous increase in Alzheimer's and tremendous increase in cancer and tremendous increase in heart disease. Um, insulin, and we can maybe summarize with what blood test people should yeah. have, 
So the problem with insulin uh, is that insulin is a growth hormone and it's miracle grow to cancer cells. And I tell anybody who has any skin tags growing on their neck or in their armpits or in their groin that by definition you uh, have very high insulin levels. What's a skin tag? A skin tag are these little things that people have burned off uh, when they go to their dermatologist and they oh. say, oh, there's a, you know, that's a benign little growth. Oh, God. It was interesting years ago <clears throat> uh, when, you know, as a famous heart surgeon, uh, most of the men that I was operating on for heart disease had these skin tags. And I said, gee, that's interesting. You know, I've got these skin tags too. And, you know, my dermatologist says they're benign and here I'll zap it. And I said, it's really interesting. So are they like freckles or? No, they're little tiny growths of skin. They are little pedunculated polyps that are out of your skin. Oh, they like pop out. Got yeah, it. they're little pop out things. They're the equivalent of a colon polyp. And got it. if you've had a colon polyp, I pretty much guarantee you that you have an elevated insulin level. Hmm. I've never met a patient, male or female, with a colon polyp who doesn't have an elevated insulin level, ever. Hmm. Yeah. So ketosis is, we're designed to burn sugar as fuel, and we do it very well. But we have a backup system because we took over the world you know, because we're one of the few animals besides a bear and hibernating animals that can access the fat that we've stored for extended periods of time. And to get access to that fat store, we turn sugar into fat. We also turn protein into fat. But we have an enzyme to do that. Now, if we have an enzyme to turn sugar into fat, one would think our design would have an enzyme that would take fat and turn it into sugar. And we don't. We have an enzyme that will turn fat into a available molecule, which are called ketones, which are free fatty acids, that can be burned like sugar. And the problem is that enzyme is called hormone-sensitive lipase, and there won't be a test. Um, hormone-sensitive lipase is sensitive to a hormone, and that hormone is insulin. So if you have an elevated insulin level, like 80% of Americans do, like I used to have, then if you stop eating, your brain, among other things, will starve because you can't get to all the fat that you stored because this high insulin level is blocking the enzyme. And you have to wait for insulin to fall before you will get into ketosis. And interestingly enough, I see a large number of my kind of Adkins paleo patients who think they're in ketosis because all they're stopped eating carbohydrates. <laughs> and in fact, when we test them, which we do all the time, they're never in ketosis because they actually are eating so much protein that they never achieve ketosis. So I'm going to close the loop. You mentioned markers. So what are the markers? What are the tests? You know, so someone wants to get checked out for, you know, your, for, for anything uh, cardiovascular. What are the tests? Yeah, so the first thing is find out, uh, you should find out if you carry the APOE4 gene. And APOE4. Capital A, little p, little o, capital E, and then a 4. Okay. Um, you can get it with any of the genetic testing services. There's a number of labs that will be happy to do that for you. Salvio will do it. Uh, True Health will do it, just to name a couple. Um, Vibrant America will do it. So if you carry the APOE4, which is, quote, uh, predisposes you for Alzheimer's, it's the only known gene that has an association with increased risk, then you want to follow uh, a low-saturated fat diet. Hmm. Uh, the second thing everybody should have is a fasting insulin level. Now, most well-meaning docs measure a fasting glucose or fasting blood sugar, and a lot of good docs will measure a hemoglobin A1C, which is a pretty good way of seeing how much sugar and protein you're handling for the two months prior to the test, looking backwards in time. But an, a fasting insulin level is, a, is an $8 test, and, hmm. and anybody can get it done. The other thing that I talk about in the first book, uh, and I don't, didn't bring it up on the second book, is... Particularly if you're of Northern European descent, you should have a blood test for 
LP little a. And that's capital L, small p, parentheses, small a. LP little a is a type of cholesterol molecule that you carry a gene to make or you don't carry the gene to make. And this is the meanest, nastiest, stickiest cholesterol there is. It's a little ball of cholesterol that has a corkscrew on the end of it. And this corkscrew literally drills into your blood vessels. Mm. People who have a strong family history of heart disease usually carry LP little a. And you could take all the statin drugs in the world and it will have absolutely no effect. But a simple B vitamin, vitamin B3 niacin, makes this come down to normal. Now, you have to take niacin with your doctor's help. Um, but niacin is the cure for LP little a. And it's one of the big missing pieces in people's cardiovascular uh, workup. Hmm. Uh, because, again, statins have no effect on this. What other tests? Yeah, people do the stress test, and they do so, calcium score. Yeah, what, calcium score, great yeah. question. So the reason Medicare and insurance doesn't pay for a calcium score is that calcium scores per se do not tell us the degree of plaque inside a blood vessel. Calcium tells me that at some point in your life or ongoing, you're damaging your blood vessels and they've been replaced with probably bone forming cells. Um, but calcium in general, and trust me, I'm a heart surgeon, looked at right. 10,000 people, is on the outside of the blood vessel. And it does not predict whether there's any soft plaque, which is the troublemaker on the inside of the blood vessel. So what is the test then? Is so it LP3, it, little a, no, if, Yeah, if you're, <clears throat> you know, if you want a definitive uh, cardiovascular invasive test, then get a CT coronary angiogram, which actually gives, if, depending on who's doing it, the most beautiful 3D picture of all your blood vessels in your heart that you can imagine. And a good guy will sit there and show you what everything, every blood vessel looks like. Um, if you've got too much calcium in your blood vessels, it usually can't be done. But most of the time, you can see on these tests that it's not the calcium that's the problem. Hmm. Any yeah. other tests we should get? Oh, you know, I do fractionate lipids. Um, I like to look at what's called oxidized LDL. LDL, the quote, bad cholesterol, really isn't bad for you uh, unless it's oxidized, unless it's sticky, unless it's rancid. And, uh, you know, Michael DeBakey, uh, back in the 1950s, one of the fathers of heart surgery, always used to say that he thought cholesterol had nothing to do with heart disease and atherosclerosis, that it was an innocent bystander. And the longer I've been at this, the more I think he was right, that if we were a, uh, a, an alien observer uh, from outer space circulating the Earth, and reporting back our findings, one of the findings we could make is that ambulances cause car accidents. And I could say that you know definitively because every time I see an ambulance, there's a car accident. So I know the ambulance caused the cars you know to hit right. each other. And that would be a correct observation, one of the correct observations. The so I think DeBakey was right that cholesterol is probably an ambulance at the scene of a violent confrontation hmm. uh, at the wall of our blood vessel. And it's just there to kind of patch things up or to carry away the victims. Right. And it gets trapped in the... What about blood pressure? They just lower the guidelines. Yeah. You know, I think I there. it's a double-edged sword. I see a number, particularly of elderly individuals, and I have to apply the, the Norm Shumway rule of transplantation, an elderly individual for a heart transplant was always one year older than Norm Shumway. And so, um, you know, when Shumway started doing this in, in the 40s, uh, he said that, you know, 45 was the upper limit of heart transplant. And then when he got into the 70s, it became 78. So an elderly, an elderly individual, if we really try to get them within guidelines, a lot of them, I see their kidney function really start to fail. And it's because a lot of people have to have kind of a, a power head to, to drive through their kidneys. So I'm, I'm cautious about that recommendation. Plus, I'm absolutely convinced from my own research 
that if you start eating properly, your blood pressure will plummet. Uh, right. Plummet. Right. So what's some of the most exciting science to you right now? You think things are, it seems like nutrition continues to evolve. Like what, what's the latest and greatest that has you excited about how it is going to evolve? Well, I think the whole mm-hmm. science of brain health and what causes damage to the brain, how do we keep our brain alive uh, as we age is, is some of the, the most exciting work that uh, is being done and has to be done. I mean, I think the big fear about getting old in this day and age is, you know, all of us want to live a long time, but we don't want to live uh, drooling in our oatmeal <laughs> in an old folks' home and not know that we're there. And so we can keep a body alive a pretty long time. You know, I'm unfortunately responsible for some of that. Uh, <laughs> but if your brain isn't there, then, you know, what, what good is all this? And I think that's the other really exciting area of my research is, is in longevity. And, and that's, that's the real paradox is, okay, you know, we all want to live a very long time, but what we really want to do is we want to die young, uh, you know, at a very old age. Sure. And, and that's, that's the conundrum of, of how do we do that. Right. So... What keeps you up at night? My dogs. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you worry about besides your dog? What are you worried about? And then what has you excited every morning about what you do? Um, well, I guess uh, I have two uh, very young grandchildren. And I think any of us uh, looking ahead two generations wonder, is, is there anything here that, we're going to lo- leave the them. I mean, yeah. is it, it, will we? <clears throat> will it even be here? Uh, so I guess I do. You know, now that I have grandchildren, uh, you go, whoa! You know, you, you know, talk to my kids. Are you sure you wanted to do this? <laughs> but what gets me up every morning is that every morning, uh, and I work actually seven days a week. I have office on Saturday and Sunday, uh, and I do that because I get to witness miracles uh, every day. And it, it keeps me coming to work, and I'm like a kid in a candy store. <laughs> um, so that's why I get up. Actually, I get up because my dogs say, "Come on, let's go for a, <laughs> let's go for a run." <laughs> that's why I get up. Two other things before I before I go to the last question that are that are sometimes common in the wellness world: autoimmune and parasites. Yeah, so about half not, of, not related, but no, but sometimes uh, they are. Yeah, about half of my practice is autoimmune disease. Wow. Um, and uh, I recently published a paper of 78 patients with uh, marker-proven autoimmune diseases uh, who resolved their markers with my program. And uh, I'm now well over, uh, I think, 110 of these patients who are completely resolved of their autoimmune disease by following the plant paradox. Wow. And uh, my, I was a transplant immunologists and very famous in the xenotransplantation circles of how do you make a pig heart work in a human being across species transplantation. So I got to know how to fool the immune system so that when people with autoimmune disease started showing up in my office after my first book, they'd say, what do you know about autoimmune disease? And I said, absolutely nothing. Um, But I know a whole lot about how the immune system works. And if you want to play, let's play. And so I think that the leaky gut at its very foundation is the cause of all autoimmune disease. Hmm. And, And sealing that gut, and I think removing lectins is one of the key features that other people are missing from sealing the gut. Lectin's design is to break through the wall of the gut, and Dr. Fasano has sure. d- d- shown this extremely well. So I think that's where autoimmune disease comes from. Um, parasites. parasites, you know, uh, I'm fungi is the next frontier. Um, I think the the fungome is now just recently being investigated and I think as we begin to break down the 
the viral genome and the fungal genome and look at those interactions with our bacteria, which we think of as our microbiome, we're going to see that just as we learn so much about the bacterial microbiome, there's going to be another huge leap as we understand how fungi and, and even viruses cooperate in how our ecosystem of mm. our microbiome works. Mm. So. so if you could go back in time and give young Dr. Gundry advice, what would that advice be? Oh, do exactly what you did. You'll, <laughs> you'll eventually figure it out. <laughs> I like that. Dr. Gundry, thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, Jason. Good to see you again. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.